Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, and I am the Intern Whisperer. Our show is brought to you by Employers for Change. Today's tip of the week is about authority bias. This type of bias refers to when an idea or opinion is given more attention or thought to be more accurate because it was provided by an authority figure. Authority bias is very easy to find in the workplace because hierarchies are already in place. Existing hierarchies make it incredibly easy to simply follow the leader, even if the leader's ideas aren't what is best for the company or their employees. But putting too much trust and power in leadership roles can limit employee engagement, hinder employees' professional growth, and ultimately damage a company's ability to innovate. So how to avoid this? Authority of bias can be difficult depending on the culture of a workplace. One of the best ways to avoid this bias is to foster an environment of ideas where others speak up and voice their own opinions and ideas. So welcome to the Intern Whisperer. Our show is all about the future of work and innovation. And today's guest is somebody I've known for quite some time through the Good Network. Yay, Good Network. Um, we'll explain that later. Camaria Scott, she is the founder and CEO of Inetic. You guys will be able to learn more about where she got that name. Camaria is an industrial organizational psychologist. That is I-O, just so you know, with expertise in learning, leadership, culture, and change. And she has newly launched her own company, Inetic, as I said earlier. And she helps organizations develop people leaders, love that phrase, and leverage them as partners in times of change. Camaria also has a podcast called Manager to Manager and is working on a book. And you guys are all going to get to hear all about her now that she's here. So yay, welcome. That's our sound effects, just so you know. Yes, that's our sound effects. Our show is always about education, innovation, and future of industries and work. So I lead off the show with tell us five words and why those five words. And don't worry, I can prompt you. So First one, determined. Why? Well, anybody who knows me knows I'm a Capricorn. So by nature, we are determined almost from birth. If there's a goal that we set for ourselves, we are going to reach it. We are certainly going to keep going until it comes to fruition. So determined. Mm. Yes. And sometimes people say that about myself and I go, yeah, I'm pretty, you know, tenacity is one of the other words I would use, like a bulldog. I don't know if you get ever compared to like a pit bull or a bulldog. No. So interesting, like Capricorns, for those of us who are astrology lovers like myself, we are goats. That is our sort of like animal. Mm -hmm. And so think of something that's going to like slow and steady, trudge up a hill and we're going to keep pushing at it and pushing at it until it moves. Mm. So not like oh, super aggressively, but like we're going to stay the course and we're going to keep going until whatever obstacles in our way is, is gone. I love that. I love it. And we know that the word goat also has greater. What does it mean? The greatest of all time. There you go. And we are. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <clears throat> okay. So inquisitive. Why inquisitive? Oh my goodness. Because. I always tell people learning is my superpower. It is, it has gotten me through so many things in my life, but the ability to ask a question, to be curious about why is something the way that it is? Mm -hmm. Why does someone feel that way? What, what happened to cause the situation? When you can ask the right questions, you can find almost any answer and you can find any new solution. So I always come at 
almost any situation from a place of curiosity. I want to know all the details. And the more information I have, it helps me then to create a clearer picture of what mm -hmm. the problem is and what I'm solving for. Oh, yeah. I've been in enough work sessions with you. Yes, that is exactly how you tackle things. You're so professional. I always, when you and I were on the leadership team, I loved working with you so much. Yeah. I, likewise. You know, it's so funny because I have left a number of organizations. Let's say goodbye to a number of teams. And one of the things that has been sort of like humbling, but wonderful at the same time is when people kind of repeat back to you mm -hmm. your mannerisms or habits that they've come to know over the years and as I was sort of looking through some of the things that I've collected there's always this section when people say has Kamri asked you a question yet has she asked you well what does good look like mm -hmm. what are you solving for have you thought about this and mm -hmm. so to kind of see that common thread throughout my yeah. career kind of makes me laugh a little bit but I am the person in the room who's always going to be like why are we doing that tell me how those dots connect so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember you doing that so much, so <laughs> much. Yes. So steadfast. Sometimes our listeners might think these words have, have the same meaning. So you might just shed even a little more light because steadfast, determined, inquisitive, determined and steadfast for sure. But they're very different. For me, they are. Yeah. I think for me, steadfast is consistency. Mm -hmm. It is, you will find that um, even in turbulent times, I'm going to stay the course and that, mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to stay the course in a way that is calm again. And I, I am so grateful to the teams that I have led. And that's probably why I spend so much of my time talking about managers, because I've learned as much from being a manager and leading my own teams about myself. And so even when the rest of the organization is going through all the changes and all the ups and downs, my ability to kind of keep my team steady and to kind of keep mm -hmm. us where we need to be is very important to me. So when I think steadfast, it's not necessarily about the tenacity to push forward, but to keep things afloat and keep people even when things are bumpy and rocky around them. Mm -hmm. Yep. So your fourth word as we go in here is positive. Yes, it is. Um, so I think I am a silver lining kind of girl. Mm -hmm. And and you'll hear me talk a lot about change and about um just really being able to see the bright side of things. And when you are someone who can always say, okay, well, there's an upside. I think it helps you get through things. And so even when I, when I, and I talk sometimes about my, my father being in the military. And so we moved around quite a bit. And so it was always like, you have to say goodbye to your friends, right? Yeah. Within 18 months, one of you all is moving. Yeah. And the bright side of that for me is always, but you're going to get to go to this wonderful new place. You're going to get to see like new people, learn a new language, eat new foods. And so I think from that, no matter what the change is, I can always find the silver lining mm -hmm. and the gift in what's to come. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's lovely. I moved around a lot. I did not realize how much we have in common. So <laughs> I'm sitting here going, okay, now we're going to have to go and have dinner or something. Talk more. Uh, caring. Why caring? just a natural nurturer. I am, I am, uh, and I'll talk a lot about leadership, right? I'm the kind of, the kind of manager who's going to give you a hug. Um, <laughs> like I definitely am high on empathy and, and being able to see what people are going through and giving them the care they need to get from where they are to where they're going. So I just, I think that quite often in leadership, we 
we'll say things like it's just business and we try to make things very impersonal. But I think for me, I try to see a whole person. I try to see again, where they're coming from the situation through their eyes. And I try to approach a situation with care. I think as a, as a people leader, you have a duty of care for people when people are in your charge. And so whether you are a parent, whether you are a friend, you know, whenever other people are in any sort of really relationship with people, you should care about them and and how they feel and how they're going through and that should guide your behavior. So caring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like those word choices and I would definitely pick those for you for sure. Um, so our next question, we dive into where'd you go to school? How'd you get started? And how'd you end up where you are now? Starting a company. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love this question. So first of all, to know me is to know I am a nerd. Um, so as I said, learning is my superpower. So I grew up in Jacksonville. I went to the University of North Florida. My undergrad degree is in psychology. And then because I'm also a bit of a butterfly, I applied to one grad school. Um, and, and I have to tell you how I got to grad school. So I worked at AOL in the 90s, right? I graduated in 1997. So yes, I am dating myself. I know. And, and in my head, I'm going, there is no way. You are way too young for that. Okay, I know, right? whatever. I So I worked for AOL in 1997. And for those of you who are old enough to know the significance of that, it's when AOL went from the hourly, like you had to pay for like nine hours of internet time to the unlimited, you could be online you know, forever for 1999. Mm-hmm. And so I always tell people like, if you, if you know AOL, you know, like, grr, 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 you've got yes. AOL, right. And so I worked there that summer. I was also, I think I was a freshman in college and um, the experience of working at AOL was simultaneously terrible and awesome mm-hmm. because that, that summer, when we went to the unlimited plan, we were really not expecting the demand we were going to have for that service. So I worked in the call center mm-hmm. and we were, and for those of you who know what call center life is like, my heart goes out to you. We were in the like unlimited overtime. As soon as you got, got to work, you were in the red and people were just basically calling and yelling at us all day long because they couldn't get back online. You know, they were upset about their 1999. Someone stole their password, all the things. Yeah. But what was so amazing was that the culture of working in that call center was probably one of the most fun that I've ever had and the most interesting because even during that time, they had this culture of we. So like our managers would go up and down the aisle with like a comfort cart where you would have, they'd have like, do you want pizza? Do you want a koozie? Do you want a blanket? Like, what do you need? Right? Yeah. Because there was this sense of we're all in this together. Like this situation sucks a little bit but we are a team and we're going to get through this. And so you really did feel like you were a part of something. Mm -hmm. And even though I didn't have the language and the words back then, that was really my understanding of culture and engagement. And so it just so happened at the same time I was in college um, and discovering that I was not a numbers girl, I was failing principles in macroeconomics. And so I was like, maybe I shouldn't be a business major. And I was talking to one of my psychology professors and he said, have you ever heard of iopsychology? Have you ever heard of iopsychology? And I was like, no, what is that? And so he hands me a videotape, a VHS tape. Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a player for it. So he hands me a VHS tape and it was the study of people at work. And I was so fascinated because I'm curious about people, right? Yeah. We talked about my five words. Um, I care about the work experience. And so that what's going on here and I was fascinated about the fact that we are going to spend more than half of our life working. It should be a wonderful place to be. Mm-hmm. So that's when I decided I was going to go into IO psychology. And I uh, applied to UCF. 
Um, and literally on graduation day, I got my acceptance letter that I was accepted to UCF. And again, wow. don't, if you have interns, don't be like me, apply to more than one grad school. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, and so while I was at UCF, I, um, I also knew, cause from working at AOL, I also was like, well, somebody trains us. Like what, how did I get that job? So I, I, in the midst of being at UCF and kind of getting my degree in IO, I also started taking classes in training because I wanted to know like, how do you design learning? And so simultaneously, I started learning how to design training. And then once I graduated from UCF, a couple of years later, I went to FSU and I have an advanced degree in adult education and human resource development. So I always tell people the first degree tells me what to think. The second degree tells me how to build it. Mm. So that's how <laughs> long story of my education but work experience actually influenced how I got here today. And so once I graduated from, from school and I had some work experience under my belt, what I started to realize was that a lot of organizations have the same challenges. Mm -hmm. um, they either don't know how to develop people leaders, they don't know how to support people leaders, and they don't know how to navigate change. Mm -hmm. And change management. Let's talk about that term also. Why don't you define it for our listeners? Because sometimes people go, it seems obvious what it is, change and management, but in an organization, how does it work? So I, I like to think of change management as a journey. I think one of the most interesting things about when you want people to, to do something different, and I, and I sum it up like this, you either want people to start doing something they're not doing, or yep. you want them to stop doing something they are doing. And there's a gap. Mm -hmm. So it's for me, it's a journey of where are we today to where we want, where are we trying to get to? Right. And so for me, like when I started my journey into change, and, it, and it's interesting because, you know, we use a lot of sort of technical terms and jargon, but a lot of what I learned about just navigating change came from work experience and just everyday conversations. So one of my roles I worked for Winn-Dixie um, and that's headquartered in Jacksonville. And I reported to the COO and one day he said to me, like, Camaria, I want you to help our store directors be different because he really believed that the service profit chain would help the organization, that if we had a better store experience, then our guests would have a better experience instead of all started with our leadership team. And so those words of like help someone be different, that's really the epitome of change help the organization be different. That's the epitome of change. We need, we are doing something today that for whatever reason is not working for us. And we need to figure out how to get to do something different so we can have a different outcome. Mm, I really appreciate you sharing that definition for sure. So how did you get started in your own business then? I know that you've worked at a lot. You mentioned <laughs> quite a few places. I don't know if you want to mention some of the other places because sure. you went from like a smaller company, AOL, it was pretty good size. And then you go, you said to Winn-Dixie, I'm going, what has that path been along the way uh -huh. and to get you to where you are now? Yes. So it's interesting. I have to say it's interesting being like um, a late gen Xer because I think a lot of the attributes people attribute to millennials, I think settled into my heart early on. So um, I, I, over the years was somebody who probably spent about two to three years in the organization and was like, okay, it's time to do something else again, because I love change. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I came out of um, UCF, I actually worked for Duke Energy. Okay. And I worked in, I worked in, um, I worked in learning and development and that was an interesting experience because I kind of 
got to watch how we sort of ran a learning function. And then when I left Duke Energy, I actually went to work for a government contractor here in Orlando. And there I did the most fascinating work because what we did was proof of concept training. So it wasn't like build, you know, a training product. It was let's take a psychological theory and let's actually see if it actually works. And I love that because it helps me think about all the theories that we learned as IO psychologists. You have to turn that into a viable product for an organization in order for them to be able to do something with it. And so when you think about a lot of the popular training programs that you may be familiar with, there's always a psychological underpinning behind it. And so to actually have a job where you can take a theory and say, is this a real thing? Let's mm -hmm. see what it looks like in real life was tremendously fascinating. So from there, um, the great you know housing bubble situation happened. I ended up moving back to Jacksonville and I sort of bobbed around a little bit. And that's when I ended up working for what is now UF Health. At the time it was Shan Jacksonville Medical Center. And I spent a tremendous amount of time in leadership development, but more importantly, I was helping our leaders interpret their employee engagement results and helping them understand how that connected back to the patient experience. So that connection between the guest experience and the patient experience really started at when I was working in healthcare, because there it's really important for reimbursements and things like that to make sure that they have a quality um, in the healthcare experience. So, I have a question yeah, though. So guest experience and patient experience, they're the same, right? Mm -hmm. They were synonymous terms. So were you also, I because I, I was wondering, well, was the guest experience more the family that was there um, to help the, the patient? I was seeing it in two different ways. That's why I was wondering. I don't know. Could it have been they're also a guest? Um, it could be. We don't typically survey the like the patient's family. Mm. So a lot of, you know, when you think about like guest experience and patient experience, it's it's really measurement, right? And right. who you're choosing. And so at the hospital, that was really my first introduction to really thinking about whether you call them the patient or the guest experience, but in the healthcare system, we're just very specific to it is patient. And then mm -hmm. once you sort of get out and you get into the retail world, it's guest. Sure. But it is still the same kind of end user of your product that you're starting to measure. And you want to know what that experience was like for them. So being able to kind of measure that back and then figure out what do we need to do from there? Like, how do we need to ensure that the guest experience, the patient experience is what it needs to be? That's a lot of what my role was. Gotcha. Yeah. So anyway, go back. You're yep. continuing on. So, so when I left, um, when I left UF Health, I went from, and, and we had about 7,000 employees there. Wow. So I went from 7,000 employees to an urgent care company that had 300 employees. But the joy of that role was that I got to own everything. So meaning I had the learning department. Um, I was the resident fix-it person, meaning if something was going awry in one of the centers, they would send me out to figure out well, what's going on out there. Like, why, why are our patient satisfaction scores not what they need to be? Or why are wait times? How to go figure it out. And again, curiosity, right? I'm the person who's going to go out there because I'm curious as to what's happening. Right. I also had the ability to coach our, our center directors on their leadership capabilities. So really anything learning, performance, culture, all of those things, I had the opportunity to learn in that little organization, but it was great because it was an amazing foundation for how all those pieces and parts actually come together. So in most organizations, they're, they're really held by separate people. And so you kind of have different viewpoints, you have different priorities. 
but as kind of like the singular owner of what do people need to learn? What does performance look like? How is that impacting the patient experience? Being able to sit in all of that data Mm -hmm. and then also being able to say, and these are the practices that we're going to put in place so that we can change these things. It was truly an amazing experience. Now, I don't imagine this happens with you, but do, do you think that in any of these change management strategies, some of the people, the employees will feel like, oh my gosh, my, my job is in danger. I, you make everybody feel at ease. So I can't even imagine that happening, but I'm sure that, you know, those are some thoughts. They're valid thoughts. They are valid thoughts. So I'll give you this answer from how I lead my personal teams. Perfect. So when I think about how I lead my teams, my message to them is always, I don't want you to be afraid. Mm -hmm. And for you not to be afraid, that means you have to be okay and able to weather whatever comes your way. Mm -hmm. So when I talk to them about this crazy new adventure we're going on as a team, we're going to try this thing um, because my team is always the one that's going to try the new thing. Um, or I need you to learn how to do something new or different. What I always tell them is because if you ever find yourself in a situation where you need to make a choice for yourself, I want you fully capable to make it. Mm -hmm. And I think that removes a lot of the fear out mm -hmm. of the conversation. And I think the other thing for me is that I always want them to know that, and this is my love of change, right? Nothing is designed to last forever. No. And so it's okay if this is not your home forever. I used to work in an organization where a CEO would say, this is going to be the last place you ever work. And I'd like, stop saying that to people. Um, because I want them to be prepared for the reality of the world. If you work in corporate America, there's a high chance that your company will be acquired or acquire another company. And, and my function is in HR. So if we buy a new company, there are, dupl there are duplicates of us right away. Right. And so for efficiency's sake, some of us are going to, are going home. Yeah. And so I don't shy away from that with my teams. I never try to make it seem like it's not what it is. Instead, I say, I want you prepared for whatever mm -hmm. decision you have to make for yourself. And that means I'm going to stretch you. I'm going to grow you. I'm going to push you. And if you say, this is where I want to be, I love that for you. But if you ever find yourself in a situation where this is not where you want to be or where you can be, I want you unafraid of what tomorrow looks like. Mm-hmm. That's solid counsel there. So how did we get to where we are now? And where did that name come from? Yes. So after all of these years of really having these wonderful organizations as playgrounds, I realized that I just did the same thing over and over again. I, it's like we talked about, I helped them figure out what is the change? Mm -hmm. What are we doing that we shouldn't be doing? What are we not doing that we should be doing? I helped them figure out why it's happening. I help build a guided experience for them to get from where they are to where they want to be. I make sure they have the proper learning to do it. I make sure they have the proper reinforcement and I make sure they're not afraid. That's just the easiest way I can describe it. And after doing this for many, many organizations, I ultimately was at an organization that was a professional um, services consulting firm. And when I was able to see from the inside kind of how they approached it, I said to myself, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And taking my own advice of not being afraid, I said, we're going to turn this into a consultancy and we're going to help more than just the organization that I'm in today. We're going to help multiple organizations because no matter where you are, every organization is going through change. And that is the constant mm -hmm. that is in our world today. So mm -hmm. just my passion for helping organizations is why I was like, we're going to make it a business. 
And so the term Enetic, my, my company name came from, originally it was a combination of the words engagement and kinetic energy. And so um, a large part of my background is thinking about customer experience, employee experience, guest experience. It's really about measuring the experience and employee engagement is really the employee experience. And so this notion that you can't have a different outcome until you do something different. So if you know science, kinetic energy mm -hmm. is energy that has to be realized. It means mm -hmm. you have to do something different. So it's a combination of you get to engagement by actually doing something different. Very nice. Very nice. I like that. Um, your company, since it's newly launched, you decided to take on two other things, which are full-time jobs, writing a book, and then also launching a podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about both of those. Determined, it, determined it's my first word. Yes, it was. So the podcast... I love it's it's as you and I'm sure you know this right it's a labor of love oh gosh yes but I love it because I, I think in my two last organizations I also had podcasts internally and they were wonderful vehicles for helping people listen to stories that inspired them but also giving them ideas of things that they could do with their own teams so very functionally I wanted to be able to sort of cross-pollinate that there are good people leaders out there and here are some of the things that they're doing with their own teams that you might want to try with your own team. So manager to manager is really, it's me. I like to say it's my love letter to people leaders because it's me being able to sort of talk to leaders about their work experiences and for them to share with other people what they're doing well and what works. I think when you when you go on LinkedIn, there's no shortage of like bad managers do this and bad managers do that. And if you hang out on LinkedIn long enough, you'll think that it's like a, you know, a, a, yes. just a terrible situation of management. But there are really great people leaders out there. I've personally had great people leaders. And so I wanted to highlight that. And also I wanted to maybe shed a little bit of light on the fact that, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that managing is a full contact sport. Yep. Leading people is not easy. It is a complex role. Um, it requires you to be able to tap into your emotions and your EQ and to navigate difficult situations. So I wanted to share some of that with people because I think the conversation of helping and enabling people leaders starts with understanding the experience. And so that's that's really what the podcast is for. The book, um, which is, again, another labor of love. Yes, it is. It's for my other favorite people, HR. So... In all of my roles, I have um, had sort of, sort of like a dual relationship between HR and operations. And one of the things that if you're listening in HR, you know this, we struggle with is we are charged with helping to change the organization, but we're not actually really trained in change management. And so a lot mm -hmm. of times in HR, what we'll do is we will create a new product or a new process or a new something. And we'll drop off in the business and it will fizzle. Right. Because there's no transitioning it into that, that new habit that we have to learn. Absolutely. And so for my HR friends, um, this book is really about that. It's about all the things that we want to do, but it helps us understand how do we create those new habits? How do we make sure that the proper training exists? How do we understand the experience of the people that we're designing for? 
so that when we are rolling something out, it has a greater chance of being successful because I was very appreciative and just honestly lucky, lucky happenstance, right? In my career that in my roles, for some reason, I always ended up a dotted line into, I mean, when I was at my, my urgent care, I also reported to like our, our uh, chief medical officer and our, and our COO. So I was in the field with, with our, you know, our, 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 our centers. A lot of times in HR, we don't go, we don't go into the business. Mm-hmm. We kind of design from where we are and then it doesn't work. So this is about how do we integrate? How do we understand the experience of people we are designing experiences for? And then how do we sort of leverage that change to make sure that it sticks? Mm. So you mentioned something a little bit ago. You used some jargon. Some of our listeners may not know it. You mentioned EQ. Go ahead and explain. Yes. So EQ is your your emotional quote. It makes your emotional intelligence. It's your ability, I would say, to be able to read and understand the experience of other people and to be able to navigate yourself accordingly. So if someone comes into your office and they're crying, that is not time to talk about expense reports, right? You have to kind of stop and say, okay, what's going on? But even from a people leader perspective, you have to also understand yourself and your own emotions mm-hmm. because quite often we are triggered by things as well. And we have to work through that before we can effectively deal with other people. So being able to kind of read the room, I guess is the easiest way to say it. And then figuring out how do I respond in a way that creates a positive trigger for that other person and for myself. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Okay, so I think I hit all of the jargon. I went, oh, we've got to go back and make sure we clarify that. Because, you know, uh, we in the HR field, we love to use our acronyms <laughs> as much as we possibly can. But I don't think it's just in HR. I think it applies to everybody. So I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Where can people find your podcast? Um, so they can find it at managertomanager.com. Um, that's probably the easiest way, but it's everywhere that you find your podcast. So whether you are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, um, gosh, I almost forget which one, what's who I listen to? Podcast Addict. That's my favorite because I have, I'm an Android person. No one judge me. Um, Podcast Addict. So almost anywhere Stitcher that you find podcasts, you can find Manager to Manager. Yeah. There's over 20, over 20 podcast streaming channels that at least my show that I'm fully aware of that it goes out. So yeah. I know yours is the same. iHeart Radio. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon that, you know, like just go so through the many. list. But if you want to so go many. directly to the source, manager to manager.com is the easiest way to find it. Unless you're already a, a, a podcast addict like myself, go to where you currently listen to them and you can find it. Sounds good. All right. Now we're going to go to some personal questions okay. to be able to understand more about you. What is a favorite quote that you live by? You don't need permission to be awesome. It sounds very similar to Eleanor Roosevelt, who <laughs> said you, um, oh my goodness. Now it's just like totally escaped my head. Just a minute. Um, nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. Yes. Very, very similar. Yes. So for me, yeah, like you don't need permission to be awesome. Yours is way more positive, I think. (laughs) You know what? And I'll tell you what. So like I, my teams, I think when you work in, in corporate America, the way that we evaluate performance, the way that we, you know, give people raises and promotions, it's almost like you need someone to be like, yes, you are it. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're waiting for someone to recognize your greatness. And what I tell my teams is like, don't let me hold you back from being great. And and what that means is if you have a great idea, 
I want to hear it. If you want to try something, you don't need my permission. You don't need me to validate that you're awesome. And I don't want you waiting around for a, a piece of paper or something to tell you that you're awesome. Um, you can go out and you can be awesome on your own. And I love that because I think a lot of us are just waiting for someone else to give us permission or a boost to be, to live our full potential. And I'm just like, no, you can live your, you can live up to your full potential anytime you want to. And so don't think that you need the outside world to give you permission to do that. Mm. What is the hardest lesson that you learned that changed your life? Oh my gosh. Um, the answer you know i was a straight a student um mm -hmm. <laughs> not you, a surprise <laughs> when you get out of school you learn that there are no a's oh really the answer is maybe sometimes in gray yeah um it's it's really all situational and you have to learn to really trust your gut and trust your intuition uh, on things. And so when you really want there to be a clear right and wrong answer, the reality is in life, there often isn't. And so you've got to make your way through what is. Um, and so learning to deal with ambiguity for me was really hard because I, I want to be right. I want an A. Uh, mm -hmm. I learned there are no A's. That's the hard one. <laughs> I, I'm really relating to this. I sit here and go, there's black and there's white. That's right or wrong. That's it. That's it. But we live in a world of gray. You are absolutely right. So with that, you have to be okay with, you mean there's not an answer? There's not an answer. Yeah. And and I will say this much too, you know, for, for people who aspire to be in, in leadership roles and, and even growing into being a people leader myself, you have to make the answer sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard part, right? You have to be like, the answer is blue. Even when you don't, you're not sure the answer is mm -hmm. blue. And, yeah. you, and, and there's a point where you have to stop collecting information and you can't go ask everybody under the sun. You have to just be like, the answer is blue. Yep. So that for me was hard because I, I love a good A. <laughs> mm -hmm. But once you graduate, you realize that, and that's a good lesson for interns, right? Like once you graduate, there really is not a grading scale for life that way you have to learn to navigate in, in the middle. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you most grateful for then? Motherhood. Oh, explain. Oh my gosh. So I always tell people, if you knew me before I was a mom, I was a completely different person. Um, that, that gray, that learning to navigate in the gray for me came from motherhood because for, for anyone out there who has kids, you know, that there's, there's no book for, for that. Mm -hmm. Whatever pops out is what you got. And so you have to learn on your feet how to make it work. But, but my son, he um, had some learning differences early on. And so I had to become his advocate for education and to just make sure he was able to navigate his K through 12 years in a way where he was able to learn, but also he was able to develop his self-efficacy in what he's able to do. And um, helping him navigate life made me a better people leader because I was able to see people and their different skills and strengths and what they're good at in a very different way. So the lessons that I learned being his mom are what helped me in my work life learn to be a better people leader. And so I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. They're, they're kind of like back and forth, but you know, I just, I saw the world a very, again, A plus kind of way 
And then I, I had to learn to appreciate that maybe his talents are different. Like his, he has the most amazing perception of people. He is a talented, budding young chef. And so if you're somebody who like follows the, follows the, the, the mantra of strength finders mm-hmm. or, or uh, differentiated intelligences, you know, that people have multiple gifts. Yep. And so learning to see his helped me to look at other people around me and see their gifts as well. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it just changed how I deal with people. Um, and just, again, I think it just made me a better people leader, a better person to be able to say, everybody has value. Everybody has a gift. Go find it. Mm, I like that very, very much. Then who in your life has had the biggest impact? Well, nope. We talked about that. Nope. Well, did we, we know what I was most grateful for? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because I'm sitting here feeling like it crossed over into your son, <laughs> actually, who in your life has had the big, because that's what it sounds like, but I don't know. Maybe it's not him. It, surprisingly it's not it's my dad interesting to know to know me is to, to have heard one of my dad's sayings um <laughs> so I think you know so so much of who we are as humans I think does come from you know our upbringing and our parents and our family life mm-hmm. and so I think one um I'm grateful to my dad for being in the military because I was exposed to so many different ways of life early on mm-hmm. But my dad also, I think, set an example for me of, again, that steadfastness. Like he, he's just somebody who doesn't easily get flustered. And so when you feel chaotic, I could always go kind of talk to my dad and he'll, you know, have some words of wisdom. And I'll tell you kind of a funny-esque story for me. <laughs> so I was in college and um, I'd had one of those like, me and my boyfriend broke up kind of moments. And I was also on my college dance team. And so my, my beloved dance team sisters were like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to drink. <laughs> and I, um, for the first time in my entire life, unfortunately had too much to drink and I was miserable. I mean, I had, I had dry heaves. It was terrible. The next day I went home and I told my dad what happened. Um, and you know, he didn't yell at me. He just, you thought he would. He would like he didn't, but he also didn't scold me either. Like, mm, I think that's you know, good. Parents, you know, we we tend to get to lecturing pretty quickly. Yeah. Um. But instead, he looked at me and he said, "I bet you won't do that again." And that was the conversation. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that was, you know, I did not ever do that again. Right. It, it was more so of a there's a lesson to be learned in everything. And sometimes life will teach you things. Right. And, but you have to create a safe space for other people to be able to come to you and tell you when they messed up. And that's the kind of person that my dad is. Like I, when I needed guidance, when I needed when I had questions, when I didn't understand things about life, I could I kind of always go and talk to him about it. And he helped me make sense of it. And I think by being that person for me, he set the example that I follow of, you know, being that person who, wants to help you make sense of what's happening around you, who wants to make it okay for you to make a mistake and be able to say, okay, well, I bet we, we learned from that. We won't do that again. Now let's move mm-hmm. on. So again, I think just the influence on how I see life and how I approach people came from my dad. And to be honest, probably is what I passed on to my son. I think just about every parent has said that because as soon as you were telling me about how your dad said it, I went, Oh my God, I have heard my dad say that. I don't know how many times, you know, and I don't know if it's a dad saying, obviously not, you're a mom, but I definitely have heard it my 
fair share of times as the child of parents. And I'm pretty sure that they heard their parents say it. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. And because I, you know, and, 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 and so much of like the way that I approach work situations and change situations comes from real life. And I think for most of us. And so when you start talking about things like psychological safety mm-hmm. and creating those spaces for people at work where they can come and say, hey, I need to tell you something. Right. That thing that you think is great, it's terrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Like you have to be able to create this space for people where or even, hey, I went to this meeting and it was a flaming dumpster fire. You have to be able to create that space for people where they can come to you and they can admit when something is wrong. Or if it fails, and I'll tell you, like one of my team, um, one of my favorite things about uh, a team that I led was we were, and this is pre-pandemic, right? Maybe two, three years before pandemic, we were experimenting with virtual instructor-led training. And so we we were using a different, a new um, learning classroom, virtual learning classroom. And one of the things that we didn't understand was if people joined using their telephones, or if they joined using computer audio that we couldn't put them into breakout rooms together. So we had designed this whole thing. You're going to go into a breakout room. You're going to have a great discussion. It's going to be fabulous. We get to the first breakout and we're like, why are half the people still in the room? (laughs) It's because we did not know this, right? And so on the fly, we're fixing it. But, you know, jokingly afterwards, we called it the dumpster fire. And my team made teams backgrounds that say have a dumpster fire free day. But the the ability to laugh at a mistake, to see that no, this is something that none of us caught and laugh about it, make it a safe space. Someone on my team said to me, you know, I used to hate change. I used to hate new things, mm-hmm. but now I don't hate it anymore. And it's, it's, oh, wow. that, it's that safe space. It's that we made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Nobody died. It's fine. We mm-hmm. fixed it and we move on. So I think, you know, being able to understand Sometimes not just the words or things that people are telling us, but like, what is it, what is it really cueing in us? What is it embedding mm-hmm. in us? And how does that turn up later in life to create that for other people? Yeah, you're right. It always goes back to something where they were either shamed or there was something where they were really embarrassed, whatever. I was doing the same thing today with my little team, my little intern marketing team. And I said, so I can release the B anytime I want, but I want you guys to know I love you. I will fight for you. I like you personally, but I can also be angry. And you didn't do this. And this made me angry. And I just want you to know that what is the worst thing that's going to happen? Very similar language as yourself. You know, do you think I'm going to not like you? Well, that's not going to happen. You guys are the best people I've worked with in social content. I'm so proud of them. So they, one of them was smiling at me the whole time. And I was going, this is great. This is exactly what I want to see. And the other one's like this, his head's down. (laughs) And I went, Hey, Hey, look up here. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. You don't have to hang your head down. Like you're ashamed or anything. No, you're an athlete, you know, shake it off and keep going. And he, he got there and, you know, I was going, all right. This is how I feel. You're doing the same thing. We do the same thing. Yeah. Different words, different c- scenarios, but safe space. People always need that. How much grace do you ask for in your own life? It, exactly that. Right? Tons. Yeah. <laughs> Tons. Yeah. But I think, and I think for me, 
giving people grace, giving them, because, and this is where it intersects with change for me. Mm -hmm. You are always asking someone to do something differently or better. Mm -hmm. And so you have to give them grace that whatever that new thing is, or that better thing is, there's a learning curve with that. Right. We don't, we don't jump out of bed in the morning. Great at everything. And and I'll tell you, I think you and I both have intern uh, marketing interns this summer. Yes. And same program. Yep. Same program. Yep. And so, you know, with my marketing intern, we, we have a great time because, um, I, I jokingly say I'm a complete old lady. I know nothing about my socials. <laughs> mm-hmm. She knows everything, but I, I give her the space to try something. And, and mm-hmm. you know, she, she shows me something and I look at it and I might say, okay, well, tell me, tell me what you were, what you were aiming for. Like, mm-hmm. what were you trying to achieve with this? Right. And we'll, we'll sort of talk it through, but the more I, instead of really giving her feedback, but I ask her questions about right. what was her intention? Like, how did she get here? Okay. Let's talk about this. The more I see her willingness to try something different, to try something oh, yeah. new. And so it's really thinking about being intentional about what you're trying to create in the other person. And so if you're trying to, going back to our conversation about EQ, mm-hmm. if you're trying to create a space where people feel like, I have this idea, I don't know if it's going to work, but I want to give it a chance. Mm-hmm. They have to say, well, if it doesn't fall down, if it doesn't work, if it does fall down, Kamari is not going to be mad. Kamari is going to say, well, at least you tried and what did you learn? Mm-hmm. And how can I help you do it again differently or better next time? Mm-hmm. And to that extent, I have seen my team do things that are wildly beyond what I have asked of them. Right. So I have, I had someone on my team. So on my team, um, on teams I have led, everyone gets a passion project. And so my, my parameters for passion projects are, it has to be something that benefits both you and the organization. Mm-hmm. So you, like, you can't say, I'm going to do a cooking show unless there's something related to what we do here. That's so right. If, if the finance works out, then the finance needs a cooking show, they're their, they're their girl. And so I had someone on my team um, who, but other than that, it has to be for their own personal development as well. And I don't give them any parameters. I don't, I don't give them timelines. I don't give them mm-hmm. anything. I just want to say, at the end of the year, I want to know how you developed yourself and what did you do? So I had someone on my team and she, I didn't even know she could code. So Mm. I said, you know, we had um, an LMS learning management system and the learning management system that you create like spaces where people could, you know, come and talk to one another. And so everybody, as soon as we wrote out the LMS, everybody wanted a space, right? And our team of like, you know, two people trying to create spaces. And so for her passion project, she created an automatic space builder. So think about like building a website, how we have all the website builders that you can just put right. together. On her own, she coded a space builder. I couldn't even, I could, first of all, I didn't know she could code, right? Right. <laughs> but when she showed it to me, I was so blown away that I was like, this is beyond what I could have asked you for. But in order for her to even take that chance, she had to know that I was going to give her space to do it. That if it didn't work out, because then what I did was I was like, oh my goodness, we need to like figure out how to have our customers learn how to use this. This is a a tremendous benefit to us as an organization, because instead of us now having to take requests to build these spaces for our internal customers, they can build them themselves and you can just teach them how to use it. But giving her that space to try something different, Mm -hmm. she had this idea in her head and she wanted to see if it can work. 
that's where the psychological safety comes in that if it doesn't work okay nothing lost I say yeah at the end of the year I'm not going to say your performance was terrible because your your space builder didn't work I'm going to say you tried something you found a business problem you solved for it Mm -hmm. or at least you tried to in my book that's a win love it we're going to take five, uh, just a few minutes to acknowledge our sponsor, Transcend Network, and we will be right back. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments, receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for edtech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. And we're back in the second half, a little like three quarters of our show here, but um, well, one quarter, I think left because this was really a good conversation. It was so rich with insight as to how people think and how you can use some psychology in the workplace. I know that my listeners are going to love this like crazy. So you gave lots of great tips. What are your thoughts about the future of 2030? What is it going to look like? Gosh. So I think from a work perspective, it's going to be heavily augmented with technology. I think if you are not someone who is tech savvy in some way, you're going to struggle. Um, But I will say this much. I'm very excited as well because I think technology is going to elevate the capabilities of what people can do. And so what might have felt like a limitation that someone has in you know, just some some areas, I think technology is going to buffer them in a way. So I think there's going to be greater potential in what people can do career-wise aided by technology. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, thoughts about remote blended on-site. What do you think the workplace is going to look like? 2030, remember, 2030. <laughs> 2030. Um. So I think it's going to be, I, I know people are going to say it's, it's going to be hybrid. I think to a large extent, it's going to be hybrid, but I don't even think it's necessarily about where people will be sitting as much as how they will be relating to one another. Because I think in the conversation about, you know, hybrid and, and on-site, the reality is even when you go into the office, you're working remotely. So if you think about mm-hmm. matrix organizations, which a lot of organizations have gone to, and I'll just you know, use another one of my work examples. I went to work for um, BMY Mellon when I got there in Lake Mary, where we live, I supported Lake Mary on site. And so my clients were on site, my trainings were on site. And then we went to a matrix organization and I no longer supported anybody in that office. So what does matrix, matrix organization mean? So that basically means that you might be one person, but you're not assigned to one business unit you might have different clients across different business units. And so you have like one piece of something, but it spokes into very different business units. So no one kind of owns their one particular resource. You basically support multiple things. And so because of that, a lot of us support multiple projects. We're in project teams. We're not necessarily in whole teams and functional teams, the way we might have been in previous years. And so you can go to the office and still technically work remote because none of your team is there. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're going to see in that is we're going to see more people. (laughs) You're like, hmm. Um, Yeah. I think we're going to see more people thinking about how they work with people that are not where they're located. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a bigger issue or something to work through. People who there is some technology in the middle of them 
regardless as to whether or not distributed more more distributed whether or not they're working in an office or not i think that i don't think it's that important gotcha yeah i would agree with you i enjoy the ability to go to an office because i'm one of those types of individuals that i get energy from being in a different space i also like the separation of where i lay my head mm -hmm. and where i work i want them to be different i yeah. need the transition time when I was in COVID, I felt like I was in jail. Oh my goodness. And see, I was the opposite. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like I, and several people have said this, right? I felt like I was preparing for COVID my whole life. I was so excited. I, so I, and I'll tell you, I went the other direction. So I started working remotely, gosh, five years before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so again, I fully worked in office one day. I, I fully worked in office until they were like, well, we, you don't support um, this building anymore. And that for a while, again, I sat with the same people, but it was interesting because we didn't interact with each other because we didn't work together anymore, technically. And the other part of it was the office itself had changed. So if you, and I'm going to date both you and I, um, <laughs> you know, if you think about when we first started working, you had, a, like, you might've gone into an office where you had an office. I remember my first like role with the city of Jacksonville, I had my own office with my own little table uh -huh. and my door was closed. And then we were like, oh, we're going to tall cubes. And then from tall cubes, we went to mid-sized cubes to now we have open floor plans. And if you think about people and their individual differences, for some people, that's fantastic. For someone who's ADD like me, that is a nightmare. So all the different distractions of not having my door or not having my high cube made work in the office almost unbearable for me. And I think about when the discussion we have around when and how people work and even 2030, I think it's more around the personalization of work and the personal experience that people expect and the level of flexibility to decide what works for them and decide what they need, either based on their family life or on their personal preference, because where you may prefer to have people around you and get energized from it, I like it in small spurts. Yep. <laughs> but when I get to doing instructional design work, I would prefer to be absolutely quiet. I don't want to hear my neighbors talking. Mm -hmm. So I think figuring out how to create a personalized work experience where people can think about what they need to be at their best and figuring out how to do that at scale in an organization is going to be one of my greatest challenges. Mm. There's been a lot of discussion about having workplaces that are just geared more towards gathering, you know, like community areas and conference rooms and using things in that way instead of having offices. I always like to go away into a place like what you're describing, quiet, a quiet place to do my work. But it's weird. I like to have my either like a movie I've seen a million times. Yeah. Just playing in the background yep. because music I get into too much. But yep. if I just hear that chatter, yes. you know, of people talking, I do not listen to the movie. I just use it to stay super focused. A little bit of white noise. I do the same thing. My yeah. son is always like, are you watching that again? I'm like, I'm not really watching it. It's just on. Yeah. But to your point about, you know, the, the workspaces. Mm -hmm. So I think when there's a purpose for people to gather, let them gather. Right. So again, I, I led a remote team pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. I had somebody, I had somebody in Wisconsin, I had somebody in Texas, I had somebody, you know, so I, I, I've never really led an on-site team mm -hmm. for most of my career. And for those, for the people that did live here, you know, when I wanted us to gather, I would put like a bat signal in our team's channel. 
Oh, really? And we would, <laughs> old and school that, bat, Batman. Oh, yeah, it was okay. the bat signal. And, and that basically meant we're going to the bat cave. Mm-hmm. And that's what we called going to the office because we that meant we would we would come here when we needed to do collaborative work, when we needed to be together to put our real life sticky notes on the wall, when we wanted to you know, iterate something really fast. So if we had a reason to come together and be together and that, and that reason could be bonding. So I, again, flying in people from other locations, because I do think that as a remote team, you need to see your team at least once or twice a year yep. to to form that bond. But that that's what the purpose was. So gathering with purpose is really important, but there's no, there is no purpose and I'm going to say this, there's no purpose in you sitting in a cube and me sitting in a cube just to work on our individual work. Mm-hmm. So if that's your preference, I'm fine with it, but I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't mandate it to anybody. Yeah. It's more about preference at that point in time. Yep. What ethical dilemmas do you foresee coming up out of anything that's in AI? So let's combine those two together. AI, mm-hmm. how do you want to, how you ever want to define it is fine. But what are the dilemmas that can come up? But what are the good things? Yes. I'm, so I want to start with what I see as a challenge even today. And that is authenticity of expertise. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yep, yep, that, yep. that for me is one of the things that I am most concerned about that I'm keeping my eye on because, you know, in the space where a lot of us lean, um, lean on thought leadership, to know who to follow, who to believe, what to trust, what to understand. If you don't actually have that expertise, but you can go to your favorite AI empowered um, you know, platform, type in a couple prompts and voila, you can you know pretend that you have that expertise. It makes it more difficult for people to make informed decisions about if they are buying a service from someone who truly knows and has the experience to accomplish what they need to get done. Right. And so that for me is a real fear because I don't know if this is, I'm, I'm a purist in some things, but I think there's a lot of, and, and I think you see it even now on LinkedIn, right? Everybody can, if, if your AI can produce your newsletter, am I really getting your thought leadership? Right. Or am I getting some thought leadership, but maybe not, it's not a reflection of what your capabilities are. And then I think the other thing for me is assuming, sort of taking what you get as gospel and not understanding that it is really just an amalgamation of what's out there. Mm-hmm. So it's not just because it spit it out at you, doesn't make it true, right, real, that there's bias even in those things. And I think sometimes we don't think about that we just think that, oh, it's fitted back at me. So this must be what it is. It's kind of like everybody goes, it's on the internet. It must be true. Exactly. It that. is not true. It is, it is not, not true. true. <laughs> not everything on the internet is true. It is the same for open AI or anything that you're doing. It is just faster pulling together everything that we put out there and putting it. Yes. There you go. Right. There you it's go. Like go policy. So yeah. I think oh. those are it has to be true. It has to be true. <laughs> and so that's, and so those are the things I think for me that are always top of mind because I look at something and I'm like, oh, that looks very, it doesn't look nuanced enough. Like it's your, like, I don't see your experience reflected in that. Mm-hmm. I see a very generic level type of thing. So you I know think, what worries me though? What? Is kids using it. People that are growing up with this and they don't, 
I sit here and go, are they going to know how to research? Only if we reinforce that as a skill. Yes, AI produced this. Now go research it and make sure that you fact check it and look for the information. And you know what, for me, what's really hard about that is, so I see generational differences as I, as I, I'm going to be completely about this. As I watch my son and I watch his generation and, and I think what people have to understand is that there is a difference between information, understanding, and expertise. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the more and more we have information at our fingertips, it makes it feel like we're wise and we know things, but a lot of knowing things comes from the experience of something. So I yes. can look at a situation, you go through the situation and I can say, let me give you 10 reasons why that's not going to work. Or let me give you 10 reasons why it is going to work. Right. Because I'm drawing upon a personal experience that I know that's more than just a surface level understanding right. of what I'm looking at. Yeah. And I think what happens is we have this sort of false confidence because we can Google it. We can look it up that we know something that we honestly do not actually know. And so when I think about my son and his friends and I watch them, they have an impeccable ability to search and find, mm -hmm. right? They can search and find the answer. Doesn't mean it's the right answer. It doesn't mean it's the right answer. But when I, when I, when you get to, well, what do you know? That's a different conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like to liken it. It's like my son in cooking. He, he knows how to cook. Mm -hmm. I know how to follow a recipe, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Those are two different things. Mm -hmm. And so the more he practices, the more, the better he gets, the more his expertise automatically tells him what works, what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Me Googling will never give me that firsthand understanding until I go through it. I, I totally agree. So totally. that's what I think we have to help you know, a younger generation understand that just because you have an, a mass of, of information at your fingertips, there still has to be an accounting of experience and you have mm -hmm. to go do things. And once you do that, you can know something in a different way. That's more than surface mm -hmm. level. You mm -hmm. know how to apply what you've learned, you know, when you're looking at something. And I think that for me is even the thing with AI today is I can look at something and I can say, I don't think that's the right answer because all these experiences that I've had will tell me why it's not the same. And when you think about, again, my experience as an eye psychologist, we love theory. We love high mm -hmm. level. It should work like this. The one thing that you know as an eye psychology is that when you get into the real world, it often never works like that. Mm -mm. And so I think that's the issue we're going to have with AI is that we take it and we think, oh, we have all this information. We know all this stuff. But when it comes to putting it into practice and making it real and tangible, I think that's where we'll struggle. Mm. I would agree with you. Yep. Um, best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners. Mm, best mentoring advice. Stay curious. <laughs> That's solid. I mean, yes, stay, stay curious. I, I think, and, and I know, I don't know who to attribute this to. I know it didn't come from Ted Lasso. I know somebody else said it, but be curious, not judgmental. I think that's really it for me. I always am encouraging people to ask why, ask how, ask what, ask why, ask how, um, you know, be curious about other people. Because I think as long as you have curiosity, you're searching for answers. You're not assuming you have the answer because quite often we don't. And 
when you start with questions and you ask enough of them, then you can see the big picture of what you're solving for. So I would say just remain curious and, and remain open because even I, I would say curiosity helps drive understanding of other people's experiences. I think what you just shared is beautiful in the way that you just wrapped it in to just because it's all out there, it's at our fingertips, you know, doesn't mean that it's, you have to experience it. So if you are curious, you're not going to trust everything that comes out of chat. That's right. You're not going to trust everything that you see, uh, you know, no matter what the AI is, you will stay curious. And then that will keep you relevant. That will keep you fresh. That will make you stay just in touch. Yeah. Cause I think the, the last thing I will say is my curiosity is driven by an understanding that my view is simply a view. It's not the view. That is correct. And as, as long as you understand that, as long as you understand that, I think you'll be able to navigate life really well because when you realize that your view is just a view, you want to say, well, what does it look like from over here? What's mm -hmm. it like from, from mm -hmm. where you're sitting? And the more you can ask that, then you can, again, you can have that full view of, well, what, what is the problem? What are we solving for? What is someone else's experience? How did, how did it get there? There's a multitude of questions. And that's, I think that's where good solutioning comes from. Mm -hmm. I agree. I love our meetings. I do <laughs> love her. I, it's been a while since we had this. I think it was Christmas last year, but it's just like so time to always have some of these meetings. How can our listeners contact you? Yes. Um, well, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. I love people. So um, there are three Comrade Scots in the United States. You can find two of us on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm the one that focuses on leadership, learning, culture, and change. Uh, you can always find me at my website, eneticlps.com. Um, the Instagram channel is manager to manager. So any of those ways. Podcast. Oh, and the podcast, which is also manager to manager. I like to keep it consistent. Yep. Um, as another way to find me. So those are all the ways that you can reach out. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I have just, I've been really glad to pull some people from good networking. I'm going to continue to do that. You know, they've been such awesome people, as you well know, that's yeah, how we originally time. met. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. And for our listeners, this, well, for you, this show will air on September 19th. That sounds so far away. <laughs> it sounds so far away, but it is really, really right around the corner. And your site will be like up and running and be getting so, and so many downloads on your podcast. You're going to be getting so much. It'll be just like, oh yeah, that's well. right. Thank you for having me as a guest. I really appreciate this. And if you know of a wonderful people leader that wants to share their story, have them reach out to me. I'm always here to tell the story of great people leaders. And I do know quite a few. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you to our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, and our video production and editing team, Gabe Laporte, Tommy Myers, and Andrew Pagat. Music is by Sophie Lloyd. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusive culture while skilling your people for the future of work. We also want to thank you for supporting The Intern Whisperer by subscribing to us on Podbean, our Employers for Change YouTube channel, or your favorite podcast streaming channel. 
and please be sure to leave us a comment and share the show.